and welcome back to Crimes from the East. I'm your host, Pia, and with me are two very special people today. You know one, that's Cousin Alex. Hi, Hello. Alex. <laughs> Do you Thank like you. that I just called you Cousin Alex? Cousin Alex. <laughs> I feel like a character in some sort of sitcom. <laughs> and of course, we have our special guest for today, Katie. Katie Accardo from the amazing podcast, True Crime in the 50. Hello. Welcome, Katie. Hello, guys. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on. I reached out to you, I think, maybe like a year ago, and we've been chatting on Instagram. We've done promo swaps. We're like sister podcasts. Yes. When I was thinking of collabs, I was like, we have to do one with Katie. And this seems like the perfect episode to do that on, and I'll reveal why in just a little bit. But before that, Katie, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your amazing podcast? My name is Katie Accardo, and I host True Crime in the 50, and I look at the craziest cases um, all across the 50 states, from Alabama to Wyoming. I have kind of a mix of everything in there. I have serial killers, I have fraudsters, I have anything you can think of, you name it, I've got it. So, um... Everyone should check that out. And like Pia said, yeah, we connected, I don't know, almost two years ago, I think right when our our podcast started. And I have been such a big fan of yours since then. Um, I love this podcast. And um, I actually asked you to do a little um, promo and a little story for my New Hampshire episode. So everybody should go check that out because Pia has a great story about my New Hampshire episode. Like, it's great. You'll love it. As usual, I inserted myself into the story. I'm like, wait, I have something to do with it. <laughs> no, exactly. You, you were the one that suggested the case. And I love suggestions. Everybody, too, if you want to give me a suggestion, I would love that. So you actually suggested that case. And it was an awesome suggestion. So I did it. And then I made you be part of it. So that was me, too. <laughs> I loved that the case was covered because it was fairly recent and most people haven't heard of um, that case. It's not featured in any show or any podcast. So I was like, Katie, you need to get on this. Your your, your episode will be unique. Um, and it came out, it turned out wonderfully. It did. I love all your episodes. I am a listener. Great. And usually I want to like calm myself at night just before going to bed. That's when I start to listen. And then I can't sleep because I'm like, I need to hear the end of this. <laughs> I know. I think that's a lot of people's problems, you know, like that's a, that's a complaint for sure. Anyone that really wants to hear interesting true crime stories, some are really fun too, like the Miss Cleo one. That's one of my favorite Oh episodes. yeah, I love that story. Florida. Yeah, that was a, that was a good one. I do feel like true crime is a road trip genre and not a going to sleep genre. When you have like 500 miles ahead of you or something and you want to be awake and really like alert, true crime. When you want to go to sleep, um, I don't know. For me, it's just like other nonfiction. <laughs> <laughs> UFO podcast. Oh. You guys love that. And you guys do some of that cool stuff too. That's what I love about your podcast because it's like... You have all the different genres, too. You have all of that, like aliens and, I've you know. shoehorned it in because <laughs> I'm so interested in all these esoteric topics. And I'm like, how do I, like, make this fit our theme? And I'm like, you know what? 
Who cares? It's our podcast. We can do whatever we want. So I'm like, we're going to do it. So we're <laughs> true crime and strange phenomenon. <laughs> we cover exactly. it all. That's what I love about it. Do it. Do whatever you want to do. Oh, and I just wanted to share something. Katie has this super cute cat called Vegas. Oh, That's my gosh. Right. She's my true crime podcasting cat. And if you guys, you know, follow me on Instagram or whatever, you can see her. She's a black cat. She makes cameos all the time. So, yeah. So cute. She's my little sidekick. I think all cats have such interesting names. There's Vegas. There's Taco. What's the <laughs> other cat, Alex? That's Mr. Cute. Special? Mr. Special. <laughs> Mr. <Aww>. Special. <laughs> So yeah, I, I love cat names. I love cat names more than I love human names. Oh, yeah. Totally. <laughs> no question. No question. <laughs> and it happens like in some of our episodes where animals are involved. I find like Alex is so concerned about the animal. And she doesn't <laughs> show the same level of sympathy for it's the really people bad. involved. I'm like, Alex, hello. <laughs> but that's typical. I mean, even in movies, it is. you're you're more worried about the dog dying than yes. the, the main character, usually. It's so true. It just hits harder for some reason. What's wrong with us as a species? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's like I don't have disclaimers on my podcast all the time when bad stuff happens, you know, to humans. But every time something bad happens to a pet, I like let you know. You know what I mean? <laughs> I really appreciate that because <laughs> sure. I need that. No <laughs> you got to do it. Yep. Well, okay. So I think it's time we revealed what the unique differentiator today's episode is. Usually we talk about cases from South Asia that occur in South Asia and involve South Asian people. But today's case is different. Today's case is something I'm calling the Pravasi case, which means expat or immigrant in Sanskrit. And this is a case which doesn't take place in South Asia, but involves an Indian person who moved to the U.S. to follow their dreams and accomplish their life goals, like so many of us. And I've, I kind of related to the victim in our case today so much because of that fact. Like when you come here, you come from a different background, different upbringing, and you see everything here looks so beautiful, so safe, neat, clean. You don't connect the environment with the potential for danger because back in South Asia, it's very obvious like when you're going into a sketchy alley or you're around sketchy people, you're kind of warned by your instincts and you're trained to kind of spot the scary stuff. But it's different here. <laughs> we'll see how that kind of becomes apparent in our story today. We talk about the 2008 murder of 24-year-old Arpana Jinaga, a bright young spark that was put out in a very violent way, just as her life was taking off. Now, I first heard of this case on one of my favorite podcasts called Unresolved, and Michael Whelan covered this case so well really letting us get to know Arpana as a person. There's also a recent podcast series on this case called Suspect, which I found quite informative. And they focus on the legal aspects and the suspect quite a bit. They have excellent interviews with a lot of key witnesses. Some of the other sources for the episode today are Rolling Stone, The Seattle Times, Web Sleuths, Redmond Reporter, and Bellevue Reporter. Of course, there were many, many other articles that I read. 
but these are some of the main ones I wanted to mention. Now, spoiler alert, this is currently an unsolved case. Despite an arrest and a trial and retrial, because of the twists and turns and a very, very confusing line of investigation, where the police seem to dogmatically focus on one individual for the crime while ignoring others that might have had a hand in the crime. So tying in with the theme for the day and tying in True Crime in the 50 into this episode, this case takes place in the U.S., in the state of Washington. And that's why I thought, Katie, this would be a perfect episode for you to feature on since you cover each state in the North American continent. So Washington is where we'll be featured. Do you remember the cases you did for Washington? Yes, um, I do, actually. And what's interesting is that for Washington, I did, it was called the Bellevue Triple Murders and the Mr. (gasps) Big Technique. Um, And so actually, interestingly enough, that also dealt with immigrants to, you know, the United States, very recent immigrants that had a very horrific act of violence carried out against them. And actually, now that you mention this, it has a lot of similarities to this case. Like the police were very focused on like, you know, one suspect or two suspects. Um, Yeah, a lot of similarities with that. Yeah. So, I mean, that was my Washington case and that was in Bellevue, Washington. And I hate to say, I don't really remember exactly where that is, but it could be close by. So I think it is close by. Bellevue is right next to Redmond, uh, which is a city uh, we're going to be talking about today. So that's interesting (laughs) that in both cases, we have that common thread Mm -hmm. of how the case was handled by the police. Maybe this is just how they function out there or dysfunction (laughs) out there. Maybe, exactly. Who knows? But yeah, it's very interesting, the similarities. Yeah. With that said, let's dive into the case head first. 24-year-old Arpana Jinaga was a native of Hyderabad, India. Her family lived in a very safe and family-oriented neighborhood in Sheikhpet, Hyderabad. It was a loving, supportive family made up of learned academics like her father, Dr. Basavappa Jinaga, who was a director of the School of Information Technology in JNT University. This is a very prestigious post. I think he was not only the director, but also the dean of an infotech school. He probably had thousands and thousands of students who learned from him, and he must have been really revered by all of them in his time. And even today, I'm sure he's a known figure to thousands of people. Mm. Arpana's mother is a distant relative of the erstwhile chief minister of Karnataka state in 2008. So somewhat, I don't want to say famous, but... Prestigious? Prestigious, known family. I think all of these factors do bring certain privileges to their lifestyle, especially in India. And so we can kind of use that to create a picture of her upbringing, which must have been privileged in in that sense. Arpana has a younger sibling, who looked up to her and hoped to follow in her footsteps someday. All right, so let's delve into this Halloween nightmare. On Friday, October 31st of 2008, residents of a building in Valley View Apartments in Redmond, Washington, had a huge Halloween party. Guests mulled about into the early hours of the next day, getting drunk and then slowly retiring to their apartments. Arpana had a great time at the party, dressed as Red Riding Hood. 
As she said her goodbyes and headed up to her third floor apartment at 3 a.m., little did anyone know that this would be the last time she would be seen alive. By Monday morning, no one had heard from Arpana. Her worried father called up a family friend to go check on his daughter. The friend rushed to the apartment and found the door broken into. He went in and to his horror discovered the naked body of Arpana lying face down on the floor by the foot of her bed. She had been strangled and beaten violently, all over the head and upper torso. Who had done this? Who had fallen to such depths of depravity and taken the life of Arpana Jinaga? A very violent crime. But let's talk about better times. Let's talk about who Arpana was as a person. She seemed to be the brightest star. Arpana was artistic, creative, highly intelligent, and equally hardworking, ambitious, and focused on excelling at a professional career. Her family supported her interests and encouraged her when she showed a keen interest in technology just like her father. In her teenage years, she was a rising star in the local school circuits and was gaining notoriety as a tech prodigy. She won the IEEE Hardware Design Contest as a teenager, which opened the doors to the best schools and universities for further education. IEEE is like the gold standard for engineers and techie students in India, basically. Oh, wow. Arpana specialized her studies on embedded systems, which is a computer programming discipline related to microchip design. In fact, at the age of 21, she entered an international chip design contest held by Microchip Technologies in Chandler, Arizona. She designed a communications jammer, by the way, which was incredible for someone her age at that time. This landed her a special award as a top 20 winner, the only selection from Asia. And I'm just thinking about what I was doing when I was 21. Oh my God, yeah. (laughs) I'm a total loser. Let's not think about that. (laughs) Right. Damn, this girl is amazing. Yeah. Very. I wonder, um, do you know at all if her family was supportive of her coming to the United States? or Absolutely. They were. They were. Okay, great. It is a big Indian dream <laughs> to, <laughs> to come and, come and uh, follow the American dream. It does bring with it a social isolation and a sense of limbo like you don't know where you belong which community you now identify with those are all the pros and cons of immigrant life I suppose I feel like that kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier too about you know like in India where you grew up where anyone grows up you have an eye for like you can spot dangerous situations more easily than when you're somewhere where you know you're unfamiliar you're new or Maybe those situations present themselves just in different contexts than what you're used to. And that's probably true for like everyone, every immigrant in all places. She got her engineering degree from the Vignan Jyoti College and looked forward to a master's degree. Her father encouraged her to study in the U.S. and she took the leap, leaving the safety and comfort of her family and friends and moving to a new country on her own to study at Rutgers, New Jersey. By 2007, she graduated with a master's in electrical and computer engineering from Rutgers. 
She landed an amazing job with one of the pioneer tech companies in the computer chip and data storage field called EMC, which is now Dell EMC, in a city just outside of Seattle, Washington, called Redmond. She moved into Valley View Apartments, into apartment 8946, on the third floor of one of the units. Now, Valley View apartment tenants were mostly young people who were just starting out and needed a cheaper place to stay. And so Arpana settled in here, finding the $800 a month rent just right for her budget. Now, reading some of the comments of other residents in that area, I found that there were questionable tenants in those apartments, drug deals and other illegal activities that were probably taking place there. But perhaps it was clandestine enough that you wouldn't notice if you weren't really looking for it. Again, the small context clues that we were talking mm. about earlier. Well, I was wondering about the party. I'll just wait until we get to there. Because that whole like building party thing is kind of weird to me. It is weird. Like I've never lived somewhere <laughs> where I, my neighbors and I have a shared building party and there are just like random people coming into but I guess I was never that cool to have like big random stranger parties to begin with <laughs> revealing sad truths yeah they must just all be really young that's yeah. what I like took from that you know yeah. that's like what people would do I think and so like clandestine I guess is a little bit like um subjective because oh, like kids buying weed is not mm-hmm. super, I don't know, sketchy to me, necessarily. If you go and look at these apartments, they were apparently dated, not the most, like, fancy type of apartment. That's why they were cheap. And by the way, $800 in 2008 was not really cheap, maybe cheap for that area, because it seems to be a wealthy, techie type of place. Right. Yeah. The point that the residents were trying to make is it was shady. It was sketchy. Not like the people were dangerous, but yeah. they, they they participated in risky behavior. Perhaps a little rough around no. the edges. It looks like a nice, decent neighborhood back in India. I don't mean to say it was a bad neighborhood. It doesn't sound like it was bad, but relatively shady compared to the rest of Redmond. Now, Arpana was a bubbly, cheerful, and outgoing person. Wherever she went, she made friends. People liked her. She made the most of her life. Every day was special, and she didn't want to waste her life idling around. Back in India, she sang in a local college band and had learned the martial art of Taekwondo. In the U.S., she volunteered with the Redmond Fire Department, and she actually went along with them on the truck whenever they had a call. She used to ride with them. And she also volunteered at local animal shelters. I heard that she also had joined like a biker's club. Like she's she's incredible. She's all over the place, just trying everything she can. Really cool. Sounds like a really cool person. Yeah, exactly. Scary cool. (laughs) When did she find the time to do all this? Gosh. How many hours in her day? (laughs) I want to know. She had a curiosity and a zest for life that was always in pursuit of new experiences. One day as she stood at the traffic lights waiting to cross the road, she saw a woman zoom by on a motorbike. And it filled her with awe and amazement because this is not common in India. 
it may have struck her. Oh my God, I can do this now. <sighs> I'm in America. <laughs> she wanted to be that girl. She wanted to be the girl who rode a big sports bike. She called up her father and asked for his permission, of course, as any good Indian daughter would do. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. I wanted to add that in because to us, it's normal. Like, I didn't think mm-hmm. twice about that. But I don't know, maybe like American listeners might find that odd that you're 24 years old and you have to ask your parents permission to like buy a bike. I think in general, yeah, it would be odd. Like I was the type growing up that would probably do what she did. I was very like, oh, can I, you know, and they're like, <laughs> well, you're 24. But I think, yeah, overall, it's it's very nice, you know, but I think Americans probably would not would not ask permission. It would be more like, hey, I think I'm getting a bike and then ask their opinion about it. But this is very much a permission. Yes. If her dad had said no, she wouldn't have done it, I think. Right. But we know that they were a loving, supporting family. And back in India, especially a decade ago, this would have been quite a scandalous hobby for a girl to take up in Hyderabad. But here in the US, she felt she had the freedom to do as she wished, without social scrutiny. Her dad agreed, and she joined riding lessons. She bought a second-hand Suzuki GS500 bike and set on to make her dream a reality. She joined a local biker group called Pacific Northwest Riders, where she instantly made a group of friends who gently coached her and took her along on midnight rides through the gorgeous mountain roads of Washington. That's so cool fun yeah she just found something new to do something new to be something new to experience i feel like she also approached it so responsibly like she joined a group and i don't know it's just cool yeah (laughs) Yeah, she is cool at work at emc arpana excelled in a short period of six months she got promoted and senior management had set her on the path to the top as they saw her as an invaluable asset to the company. I mean, she was a teenage prodigy. She won awards. She was doing so great. She actually had appeared in TV interviews and her face was on magazines and newspapers back in India. So, wow. Wow. She would have been a CEO by now. Yeah. No no doubt. No doubt. For sure. The party. Let's talk about this cursed party. In October of 2008, Residents of a building in Valley View Apartments decided to throw a huge Halloween party. And Alex, I know you mentioned this earlier, but you find that weird? I just have never heard of that. I've never been cool enough to participate or be invited into a, like, building. I guess it's like a block party, maybe, is the idea. Possibly. It sounds like it, but I, I, I think that's weird, too. I've never really heard of this. Like I said, but when I heard of this case and that was happening, I was like, that's cool. You know what I mean? Like it's almost like a a frat house or something. Like when we used to go to the frat parties, they would have a different like drink in every room and a different like theme in every room. But I feel like this is kind of like that, but with like a whole apartment, which is cool. And I think that gives you an idea of the type of people that live there, Mm -hmm. you know, younger, younger folk, not very serious, you know, kind of, fun-loving they must have been like friendly neighbors too to right want to throw something together like this and mm-hmm. she was involved which again is like another feather in her hat 
for like coming to a new place and instantly like making herself a part of many communities. So we lived in apartments from like 2008 till 2014. We moved within the community of apartments, but not once did we ever have a joint party. Not once. We barely knew our neighbors. Barely. I don't think we knew their names. Just knew their faces. Me too. Yeah, Me that's too. why I I also agree. This is odd. This is odd. These these people are really nice. Very friendly people. Yeah. yeah. So four different apartments in that building would decorate their living rooms for this party in various themes. And partygoers could visit and mingle with others all along the walkways, the balconies, and common areas of the building. It was an exciting time for Arpana. She had volunteered her home as one of the party spots and had decorated her living room as a haunted forest. She had chatted about the party for weeks with her friends and had put together a chic Red Riding Hood costume. She dressed up in a mini skirt, a laced corset with black fishnet stockings, a red cape, a plastic axe, and amazing makeup. Oh my god, so fun. Yeah, it sounds super cute. It was almost like her first Halloween extravaganza, where she could dress up in such an outfit and let loose and enjoy her young life. About 40 people attended this party, including residents of Valley View and their friends as well, because that kind of always happens, right? You have a party. I mean, not in our house parties, but I guess in these kind of frat parties. People call their friends, friends of friends, blah, blah, blah. People were drinking, laughing, dancing to music, visiting each home to check out the themes. One of the residents, Leslie, had invited her friend Emmanuel Fair to the party. Now, they had met on MySpace a couple years ago. He was a 25-year-old black man who had nearly a dozen arrests in his record by that time. Drugs, firearms, and also a sexual offense, which was committed on a 14-year-old when he was 19. And he had taken the Alford plea, which means he accepts a plea without admitting guilt. I think it was a statutory rape kind of charge. Are you going to talk about, like why we're pointing out that he was a black man. Yes, further on. And we can talk about that later. Emmanuel had arrived at the party, helped decorate the home, sticking balloons to the walls and such. And he'd generally been a chill guest at the party, not really talking too much to anyone, just a little bit here and a little bit there. He talked to them about his hip-hop tracks that he was helping to produce along with his friend. He also worked as a welder, and he talked to a few people about that. He was dressed as a construction worker. Now, he hadn't planned to come to this Halloween party, so the people in the building had actually gotten together to kind of put together his outfit. Someone gave him a hard hat. Someone gave him a tool belt. Someone gave him knee pads. And so he kind of just went along with it. Again, what a friendly bunch. Yeah. Yeah. Along with other friends of Arpana, He had gone up to her apartment to have pizza later in the night, too. And he spoke to her a little bit briefly while he was there. She showed him, along with other friends, some pictures on her laptop, which was in her bedroom. And at that point, he also used her bathroom. Brief interactions. Nothing he did or said stood out too much or raised anyone's suspicions. Around midnight... Arpana's immediate neighbor, CJ. Now, I know his full name and it is mentioned in the Suspect podcast, but I'm just going to call him CJ because he hasn't been formally charged, so I don't want to 
blow up his name necessarily at this point. But CJ showed up, and while seemingly reluctant, he joined the party wearing a devil's mask. Now, he was a quiet guy. He worked with computers and had shown some passing interest in Arpana in the past. So around midnight, just when he came in, he brought in some vodka, I believe. Everyone had shots. And then he spoke to Emmanuel. They both realized that they liked and produced music as a hobby. So CJ took him down to his car and he made Emmanuel listen to his techno tracks. And as per the both of them, they sat in that car for approximately 20 minutes listening to some of that techno and then went their separate ways. CJ went to his apartment next to Arpana and Emmanuel went back to his friend Leslie's apartment. And that was the only interaction the two of them had. So now let's get to the part where Arpana was last seen. At around 3 a.m., Arpana said her goodbyes to her friends in the first floor apartment. And as she was leaving, she had a quick chat with one of her friends about how lucky she felt to be a woman living in such a cool, fun, and safe community. She felt thankful and hopeful about her new life in the U.S. and told her friend about how dangerous life can be for women in India. Oh my God, that's so, (sighs) that's so, what's the word for that? Ugh. Ironic. Yeah. Ironic. She climbed up the stairs to her third floor apartment to turn in after the tiring party. It's very fore- foreboding, foreshadowing. Yeah. At 8 a.m. the next morning, Kyle Rose, another neighbor of Arpana, heard a muffled moaning sound coming from her apartment. At first, he thought it was just the sounds of someone having sex. He thought he heard growling, retching sounds. He thought someone was being choked. But then he thought Arpana was probably just sick from drinking. After a minute or so, he heard a thud like she had fallen out of bed. And then he heard someone walk to the bathroom, turn on the tap, and the water ran for almost an hour. Thinking Arpana just had a terrible hangover, he went back to sleep. After that entire weekend, no one saw or heard from Arpana again. Her family grew increasingly worried because they talked daily on the phone. And they hadn't heard from her since last Thursday. It's been like three days at this point. It's Monday morning. Arpana's father called up his former student, Jay, who lived in Redmond, and asked him to go check in on Arpana. When Jay arrived at the building, he met with Arpana's neighbor, CJ, who was walking down the stairs. Together, they went up to Arpana's door. They found that the door had been kicked in, not only breaking the knob, but also the deadbolt. As they entered the apartment, the smell of harsh chemical hit their noses. There in the bedroom, they discovered the naked, battered body of Arpana lying face down on the carpet. A green comforter was partially covering her body. After a frantic 911 call, the police arrived and took charge of the scene. I feel like if somebody heard, you know, gagging, choking, uh, sounds like that, which totally I get if you're drunk or whatever could be confused for sex, even if you're not drunk or whatever. Yeah. But they didn't hear someone kicking down a door. Yeah. Like to the point where the deadbolt is smashed in, like... Not a huge deal, but like, 
that's kind of weird. <laughs> you know, yeah. that must be a really big sound. That's, what I was thinking too was, uh, wouldn't someone have heard like a big banging from a door being kicked in? Or Yeah. Right. I guess not. Kyle Rose actually wasn't part of the party. He had not participated in the party. So he's probably the only oh. guy who was sober and sleeping. Everyone else was drunk and knocked out. Okay. Mm. Well, yeah. Interesting. So whenever the door was knocked down, maybe he heard it, ignored it. Does that that happen sometimes? You're like sure. it becomes part of your dream. You're like, "Oh, there's a loud noise in my dream. The alarm is in my dream." True. That's true. But yes, interesting point. No one heard the door being knocked down. Let's talk about some of the evidence that was found. Trigger warning, there are descriptions of her injuries, which some users may find distressing. So you can skip the next five to eight minutes or so. The apartment was in a complete disarray. It seemed as if the killer had broken into the home. Arpana had possibly confronted him there at the door and then run into the bedroom to save herself from the attack. They found that Arpana had several instances of blunt force trauma all over her head and shoulders. She had been asphyxiated with some kind of string. Her tampon had been removed and left next to her, and there were bruises on her thighs. This pointed to sexual assault as being possibly the main motive for this crime. Several of Arpana's teeth were broken, and she had been gagged with her own underwear which was stuffed in her mouth and then duct taped on top to muffle her screams. Going by the bruising on her body, investigators assumed that Arpana had put up quite a struggle and had fought her assailant as much as she physically could. The time of death was given as a range between 4 a.m. and 8 a.m. that Halloween night. As per court documents, Arpana's body was coated with motor oil. Her hands had been doused with a blue liquid, which turned out to be highly acidic toilet bowl cleaner. A distinct odor of bleach was in the air, and bleach stains were on the carpet throughout the apartment. Arpana's bed had been stripped of coverings. A fleece blanket had been partially burnt, and a comforter was soaking in the bathtub. The police found more evidence in a dumpster in the apartment complex's parking lot. Arpana's red cape partially burned, her black satin sheet also partially burned, and a plastic bag that contained her blood-stained bathrobe and a bottle of motor oil were also found in the dumpster. This was a horrific, violent, inhuman crime. Someone who had no soul had done this, an unforgivable monster. My thoughts are that this person... Obviously, he spent a really long time attempting to clean up, but like, it's so half-assed. It's so, you know, like, comforter one place, like, tampon next to her, like, sheets in the garbage, like, right outside the scene of the crime. Like, it's just so odd to me. Obviously, he's such a disorganized criminal, but... What is really weird to me is that the guy heard the tap water, I'm assuming the bath water, mm-hmm. being run for an hour. Mm-hmm. Like, what was that for an hour? Like, what are you doing? 
So he put the comforter in the bathtub okay. and ran the tap to soak it to remove any kind of bodily fluid evidence that may have been on it. Yeah. Well, that's probably what he did that for. And wasn't there something like she had the motor oil on her and then they assumed because there were burn marks on the whatever it was that he tried to set fire to a lot of the things, but the motor oil doesn't burn? Yes. So, I don't this know. This idiot didn't know that motor oil is not flammable. Right. And that's what he had attempted to do by he or she or they. We don't know who yeah, it true. is right now. True. The suspect put motor oil all over the lower half of her body, her sheets, her cape, trying to burn it. Even parts of the carpet were covered with this, and then he tried to burn it. and didn't catch fire. What an idiot. Clearly, but I also wonder why, I mean, I, he may have, I guess I'm assuming, why he went through all this trouble to half-assedly get rid of all this stuff. Like, it doesn't seem like he tried to get rid of the body. When none of it worked, you would have like been like, okay, let's get the body out of here, but he just left it behind. At yeah. least, exactly. Maybe he wasn't physically able to. Right. Mm. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Whether small or drunk or just stupid, but you know what I mean? Wouldn't you think that would be your main? That would be my main. I don't know. If you're going to make that much of a mess, mm-hmm. try like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's really haphazard. But I, also find that the the crime this person did itself is really sort of drawn out and just to like find duct tape in order to duct tape so, like where did he find the duct tape did he go through her drawers and find the duct tape right is that where do you find all of this stuff so because there was a party the duct tape was right there on the kitchen counter because they had used it to tape up the uh, pictures okay. and Decorate, the yeah. fake spider webs and all the balloons. Okay. But he's still it's still like there is an element of basically to me torture. Yeah. It's like to make it last. Yeah. Which is you know then why are you rushing? I don't know. Yeah. It's just messed up. Yeah, like Katie said, very disorganized. Doesn't seem like they've thought this out. It was an impulse. All impulsive crime. At the same time, for like what a crazy, like chaotic job it worked because we don't know who (laughs) who did this, which sucks. Right. Yeah. And that may be thanks to the investigation or lack thereof. Uh, (laughs) Well, that'll do it. One of the initial suspects was the immediate neighbor of Arpana, CJ, who shared a wall with Arpana's apartment. So I think they shared the bathroom wall and then the bedroom wall. Even during the party, they had joked about this. They were flirting with each other, Arpana and CJ, about how they could hear each other being intimate with their partners through the walls. They were making fun about this and kind of flirting. You know what I mean? Like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Will they, won't they type of a vibe going on through the evening. CJ, who was also the one to discover her body on Monday, along with Jay, might I add. So he was right there around her apartment, coming down, doing what? We don't know, because everyone else was knocked out. They were drunk. Now, CJ's behavior during the party was a little bit off. He acted kind of like a jealous boyfriend towards Arpana and and was very interested in her. Like when she took another person into her bedroom to show them pictures on her computer, 
like she was showing everyone else. I think she was showing them pictures of her bike and her biking trips and stuff. CJ burst into the room, like asking them what was going on in there. What's your problem, dude? Like, what right does he have to do that? Yeah, no chill. Then the day after the party, on Saturday, so we know by this point, Arpana had been killed. CJ printed out directions to Canada and addresses to pawn shops in that area. And then he drove to the border, trying to blow through the checkpoint without stopping. He was stopped by border agents and turned back around because, first of all, he tried to blow through the stop. And then he didn't have a passport or a good reason for why he was going into Canada. He said he just wanted to explore. Okay. Okay. Okay, dude. Pretty random. CJ also asked friends and relatives if it was possible that he went into Arpana's apartment at night while he was sleepwalking. He asked if he could have killed her but not remember anything after the fact. Like, who says this stuff? His mind was definitely very troubled about all of this. Now, I don't know if he was just crazy or guilty, but these are weird things to say to people. Yeah. I wouldn't say this. I wouldn't be like, could I have killed him or killed her? <laughs> um, well, that's good. No. Yeah. CJ's fingerprints were found inside a window in, a, in Arpana's apartment. And his DNA was found on the motor oil bottle and a portion of wet carpet at the crime scene. Police let CJ go after a brief questioning on the morning of the body discovery. Cops found Arpana's call records and saw that CJ had called her twice that night, around 3 a.m., which he had not told them about during that brief questioning. So they called him into the station for further interrogation. CJ told Detective Coates that around 3 a.m. on the night of the party, he had heard some moaning coming from Arpana's apartment, which he thought was her having sex with someone. CJ then admitted that he messaged an old girlfriend of his, and he messaged her booty call, question mark. She didn't reply, of course. I feel like that's not how you make a booty call. (laughs) Well, this dum-dum does it like that. Maybe not for you, but (laughs) obviously not effective for Alex. But um, did they say that they corroborated that? Like, did he do that? Did they see the message? No, they didn't say if they corroborated that message. Because they were just waiting for him to admit that he called Arpana, which he didn't admit to. Mm-hmm. When they asked her, did you call Arpana? Did you talk to her? He said, no. He actually said no. But when they confronted him with call records showing two calls, one at 2.56 a.m. and one at 3.02 a.m., he said, and I quote, oh, crap. And then he said, I don't remember calling her. It was all a blur. Hmm. CJ scrubbed his phone of all calls and messages right after that interrogation Because the police did not confiscate his BlackBerry. Hmm. The detective Coates actually admits on record that he doesn't know why they didn't take the phone. And he regrets that he didn't take the phone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm. Yes. That's horrible oversight. Negligence almost. Mm -hmm. After that, despite all the questioning, CJ just kept responding with, I don't know, or I don't remember, I don't recall including when they asked him if anything had happened between him and Arpana that night. 
He did admit that he was sexually attracted to Arpana and wanted to hook up with her that night because, and I quote, she was dressed up showing off everything. Mm. Ugh. Gross. What What a disgusting guy. Mm-hmm. Misogynistic and very, like, objectifying her. Yes. Now, at that time, cops noticed that CJ had some injuries. He had a smashed elbow and he appeared to be limping. He explained it away, saying that he had gone to another Halloween party the next day. So on Saturday, he went to he went to Canada. Didn't work out. <laughs> what <Did> a life! <laughs> went to another Halloween Didn't party. Work out. And there, at that second party, he wrestled someone that he just met at the party. No, you didn't. Who does that? You remember the last party you went to, <laughs> both of you? You wrestle anyone yep. you meet there? Totally. <laughs> Nope. Of course. God, what? <laughs> Did not. This guy is just... I'm giving this guy a Buddha award right now. I mean, everything sounds very um, condemning. Nonsensical. Yeah. Then CJ requested that the interrogation recording be stopped. And apparently he just left. Mm. Detective Coates, for some strange reason, seemed to just forget about CJ after this interrogation and never fully pursued him as a suspect again. When the detective was asked about what CJ said after the recording was stopped, he said, I can't remember. I don't recall. If it was important, we would have written it down. I find that weird. I find that very weird. I wonder if that aligns to any sort of protocol to just stop a recording when someone, a suspect perhaps says, can you please stop recording me? I want to say something incriminating now, and I would like to leave. Here's the thing. I'm pretty sure cops can lie about those things. While they're interrogating someone, mm-hmm. they can, I think, lie about stopping it, but not really stopping it. I think you're right. Oh, really? They can literally lie to you yeah. while they're interrogating you. Oh. So well. I don't know why they actually stopped the recording, and then didn't even, like, put into record anything he said. Because... Just before they stopped, they said, listen, let's talk for real, okay? And he's like, I want to talk. Turn off the recording. That doesn't sound like he had something to say after that. Right. Yeah. I feel like you don't ask for the recording to be stopped unless you feel like you're about to say something incriminating. It's just... Right. Yeah. Okay. Well... Because otherwise you'd be like, I'm done talking. Can I leave? Or... I need a lawyer? Should I do I need a lawyer? That's what you would say, right? You wouldn't say, okay, let's talk. Turn off the recording. Yeah. And then you turn off the recording and you say, oh, he didn't really talk. Right. <laughs> this is the getting mad part of the episode now, right. I think. Exactly. Frustrated. Mm-hmm. Well, whatever he said worked in his favor. Because like I said, the cops never really pursued him much after that. Things took a turn. Now they had a new suspect. A few weeks later, lead detective Brian Coates saw photos from the party and suddenly narrowed in on Emmanuel Fair. The only black guy, in his words, the stranger at the party that no one really knew. Coates was asked during the podcast suspect if Emmanuel's prior third degree rape conviction was significant to this investigation. And he replied, if you've done it before, you'll do it again. So already they have a bit of a bias. Mm. Clear bias. 
all of Emmanuel's belongings were taken into custody. And he was questioned multiple times over the next couple of years. Now compare and contrast that with how they treated CJ. Yeah, wow. Yeah, like night and day. Emmanuel said that he had gone to bed around 1 a.m. at Leslie Potts' apartment. And he slept through the night. That's what he said. The cop said that that was a lie because there were 20 calls from his phone between 2 and 4.40 a.m. to three different women. Perhaps, again, booty call. I don't know. Thirsty. it was. (laughs) (laughs) The last three calls were to Leslie Potts. Now, why would he be calling her if he was sleeping in her home? That's weird, right? Yes. Now, Emmanuel claims that these were butt dials. They could have been because nothing was said during those calls. Leslie said that in the first call, her phone sent the call to a voicemail, which recorded a lot of sound of movements, but no words. Sounds of movements can be anything. Is something actually taking place? Or is he just... But also, if you're assaulting someone... Right. You're going to hear it. Yeah. It's not just going to be like movements. Or it could be after the fact when he was moving things putting the comforter in the tub. True. True. Yeah. Now, one thing to note, he never fled the scene. He stayed at Valley View for three days, helping the other tenants clean up the next day. He was pretty relaxed. He watched some sports with people. And he seemed normal till the cops came questioning on Monday, after which he quickly vanished. Understandably, since he had a record, since he was arrested like a dozen times and he's clearly not very trusting of policemen and he's he knows he will be discriminated against now compare and contrast that to cj's behavior who fled to canada tried tried Tried. attempted 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 and failed to flee to canada now in 2010 which is nearly two years after the murder emmanuel fair was charged with first degree murder and weirdly enough, the investigators seem to be okay leaving room for CJ to be an accomplice in this crime before the trial. And then in a complete turnaround, the prosecution managed to prohibit mentions of CJ being an accomplice during the first trial. It's almost like they'd given him immunity, kind of, informally. But why? Emmanuel's DNA was found on Arpana's bathrobe and on a roll of duct tape that was likely used to tape her underwear inside her mouth like a gag. Detectives also found a trace of his DNA on the front of Arpana's neck. And remember, she was strangulated, so it's an important part. But this sample was touch DNA. And it was so minor that it had to be sent to a specialized lab for review. Uh, I don't know if you remember, so like maybe a decade ago, there was an episode on CSI... Miami, I believe, where they featured this whole touch DNA. Because mm-hmm. in CSI, back in the day, remember anything, they would just brush a table and be like, we got DNA. <laughs> <laughs> we got them. Gotta love that show. It's a reality today because they're actually doing that now. That is touch DNA. So it's not bodily fluid like spit or blood or semen or something like that, which is a substantial mm-hmm. DNA sample. But this is touch DNA, which is skin cells right. just that come off your body that shed naturally all over the place. And this is not a reliable evidence right. in such a serious case because touch DNA is notoriously transferred from place to place and person to person. 
So even if you haven't been to a certain place, your touch DNA can be deposited there by another person. You shake hands with someone, they now have your skin cell DNA on their hands. If they go and touch a knife and that knife is used in a murder, your touch DNA is on it. And also, like, this was hours before the crime happened, a party where all of these people were in attendance, (laughs) known that they were there. So obviously, their skin flakes are going to be all over the place, which is Mm -hmm. just kind of gross to think about. (laughs) Try not to linger on the, the skin flake everywhere situation (laughs) it's so true though i thought i had heard somewhere or maybe i'm making this up but it was kind of weak too with his fingerprints on the duct tape because i heard that you know when they were in her apartment for her haunted forest like part of the party that she asked emmanuel or somebody asked him to like re-tape up some of the decorations i could be making this up but i think it was like he was even like no i like literally taped up like a haunted tree up to the wall so that's why i touched it that is true people did attest to that fact that he was hanging up decorations sticking decorations in arpana's apartment yeah so there was a reason for his dna to be there and his whatever evidence like fingerprints or dna was on duct tape and they had a reason for it Enough to create reasonable doubt in the mind of jurors, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Now, the defense questioned the high degree of probability that the DNA match was made out to be. So the company that did the DNA analysis, they came up with like a 56 million to one or something ridiculous, like a high probability of a match. When compared to the results of a state crime lab, which said like a thousand to one, whatever, it was a ridiculous number, right? So the defense was like, how do you come up with that high probability? What are your methods? What is the algorithm that you use to come up with that match? Because it's never 100%. You're always giving a probability of a match to say that the DNA sample you provided is most likely this person. And the CEO of the parent company of that private lab, he refused to divulge the algorithm of the computer code that calculates this match probability because it's a trade secret. (laughs) And he has a lot of the contracts to do these tests for a ton of states in America. Hmm. It's quite scary knowing the lives of people hang by a thread pulled by mysterious unaudited computer code. (laughs) Someone has to know this algorithm. Someone has to look it over and make sure it's accurate. So it needs to WikiLeak this info. <laughs> we, need, we need some programmer to be like, okay, well, we're, I'm going to put this out. Yeah, I bet Arpanet could have done it. Right. I totally. I yeah. bet. I bet. Now, Emmanuel spent six of the nine years waiting for his trial in jail. And he's, I think the longest inmate in King County Jail who was awaiting trial. So nine years is a very long time. That's crazy. Six of those years were spent in isolation. So 23 out of 24 hours, he was alone in his cell. Not in general pop or, you know, in a facility where he was able to watch TV or access the internet. No, they kept him in isolation. It's almost like torture. Mm -hmm. Because he's not convicted. He's awaiting trial. Yeah, that's weird. 
His first trial was in 2017 and it ended in a hung jury because one juror said that Emmanuel looked like a thug with tattoos on his hands. Okay. Uh, what an idiot. Oh my okay. God. Jury of your peers. They couldn't agree unanimously that Emmanuel Fair was solely guilty of the murder, which is fine. Mm -hmm. They were polled and at least five admitted that they thought CJ was an accomplice because they had heard him testify in court and they had heard the recordings of his interrogation as well. So even though the defense was not allowed to call him an accomplice and to try and alleviate the guilt off of Emmanuel by saying maybe it's CJ like you see in other mm -hmm. cases they were able to hear CJ testify and for most of the questioning he pleaded the fifth so he didn't really say anything he just said I plead the fifth I plead the fifth I don't want to self-incriminate oh my god and the jurors <laughs> found that suspicious yeah good and they heard his interrogations which if you hear it's very weird it's very suspicious and so they didn't believe that Emmanuel did this all by himself. They may have thought he was partially responsible, but they also thought CJ was responsible. And I'm glad that they ended in a deadlock because you don't want an innocent person to go to jail and you don't want a guilty person to be free. No, you got they got that exactly right. I think from all of, you know, our cases that we've done, it is very rare that a jury is that smart that a jury, you know, can make their own decisions about that and that is exactly right that ending up in a hung jury because of yeah. all of that. Mm -hmm. I think. The jury in the second trial in 2019 acquitted Emmanuel on account of reasonable doubt again. This means that they aren't sure that he's innocent but they are doubtful over his guilt, okay? Which means they, again, may have thought that someone else, possibly CJ, had a hand in this crime. Emmanuel is a free man, and he has filed a lawsuit against the police department for unfair treatment, which I am actually <laughs> in full support of because the way that they have treated him in this case, regardless of his guilt or innocence, if you look at the case, they have treated him so harshly compared to how they treated other possible suspects. Mm -hmm. The lawsuit alleges that a lighter was found in CJ's apartment with a sticky substance on it. They took a picture of that lighter, mm -hmm. but they never collected it for evidence to test it for motor oil because it looked like motor oil. The crime scene was full of DNA from dozens of people, like Alex had mentioned, like the entire apartment. There were like 50 people going in and out, skin cells everywhere, DNA everywhere. Arpana's removed tampon alone had three separate unidentified male DNA profiles on it. What? Yeah. How? Unidentified male DNA was also found on a bruise on Arpana's wrist. There were a few more potential suspects that the cops could have pursued further, but they didn't bother much with them. Police records show that two members of the biker group that she hung out with had a history of sexual crimes, and one had been kind of sexually harassing her at that time. Police also found DNA from a third biker, Aaron, who she'd been in a casual relationship with. His DNA was found in her costume and on the sheet that was draped over her body. Now, Aaron explained that Arpana had modeled the costume for him a week prior, and then they had been intimate on her bed, which is why his DNA was there. 
Aaron was not at the Halloween party. He was actually at a different bar with his friends and he went home at 4 a.m. But he was alone at 4 a.m., right? Now, any good mm -hmm, cop would follow that up, try to find enough clues to clear him and make sure he was home. He went to the bar. He came at this time, blah, blah, blah. I don't think they did that. Another resident at the apartment complex committed suicide just days after Arpana's death. And his DNA was never compared to anything found on the crime scene. What is happening? I don't remember that. Wow. There's so mm. many, like, there's just so many sketchy, yeah. sketchy circumstances. So many possible avenues of investigation that they could have pursued, but they were just so hyper-focused on Emmanuel because he was the only black guy there. He was, you know, a, a convict. He was a criminal. He had all these arrest warrants. He was the stranger. Everyone else kind of knew each other, right? He was the stranger. No one knew him. And he was an easy target. At least that's what his lawsuit alleges. Emmanuel's lawsuit also alleges that police failed to properly secure and gather evidence. The officers allegedly did not change gloves oh between evidence collections <clears throat> or between rooms or locations. I'm shocked this they is so dumb. collected any evidence so far. You've said that they didn't collect anything, <laughs> that, you know, connected to the crime. Like, what did they collect? You know so what I mean? All this, dumb. not that, this, maybe this. It's also just like you spend money for a private DNA sampling like lab, but the people collecting all of that probably DNA evidence are just, you know, mixing it all up on their gloves and yeah. creating a nice yeah. just crazy soup of it. Yeah. <laughs> they might be the ones transferring Emmanuel's DNA. Right. Who knows? Skin flake soup. Mmm. <laughs> Back in 2008, after the King County Medical Examiner's Office had completed Arpana's autopsy, her body was flown back to India, where her family then gave her the last rites as per their religious traditions. They were in utter shock at what had happened to their beloved Arpana in just the blink of an eye. There is no closure for them. There is no closure for families of victims. It's kind of sad, too, because, you know, we're hearing a lot of, like, old cold cases that are now being solved thanks to DNA discovery or analysis. And they're definitely just not going to trust anything like that if it happened now. You know what I mean? Right. Like, right. Right. Short of someone coming and confessing. And even then, I just feel like the investigation was so bungled that... It would be hard to trust anything that comes out or happens. Yeah. Yeah. So frustrating to see no resolution. Nobody has been punished for this violent crime. There is no justice for Arpana and her family. Why don't we hear about her case often? I want her story to be on every true crime show. Forensic Files, Unsolved Mysteries, 2020, Crime Weekly, put it on there. We need her case reopened and brought to conclusion. I believe the police were sincere in their quest for justice. They wanted to catch the killer. They wanted to catch a killer. I'm not convinced that they were fully equipped with the right skills to do so. 
Perhaps they could have built a stronger foolproof case against a suspect that may have led to a more fruitful trial. We don't just want a suspect on trial, we want the right suspect on trial. It seems so close. We just need one last clue to connect the dots. We need to put this monster away. Now may his bad karma haunt him in this life and beyond. But rest in peace, Arpana. You may be gone, but you are not forgotten. May you shine on like the brightest star. That's our case for today, and I want your final thoughts. Um, I think the thing that you said that resonated with me the most, and this doesn't, this doesn't mean I'm saying that this proves that CJ did it. It just, I think, almost proves that Emmanuel didn't do it, mm -hmm. is what you said about how he stayed. So he was couch surfing, right? He was just staying with a friend mm -hmm. and he didn't leave is what you said. So right. if you're if you're couch surfing with a friend and you go to a Halloween party and then you brutally rape and murder, especially being an already, you know, convicted rapist, you brutally yes. rape and murder someone, do you stay for the next two nights? You just hang out. That I think is my biggest and you you mentioned that and I didn't even realize that. For and sure. it was like light bulb went on and I was like I don't think that guy did it because no one in their right, a black man, especially, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, you ain't no staying. Because he did vanish the minutes cops showed up. Oh, that's, I get that. I get that. And if he had committed the crime, he would have gone the minute the crime was done. Absolutely. Because he knows cops are coming. Right. Any, any minute, any minute now, he would know the cops are coming. He would have disappeared. But he stayed for like three more days. And he only yeah. disappeared when the cops showed up because that's when he realized, oh, there's a crime that's been committed here. There's a murder. And oh, my God, they're probably going to suspect me for this. Exactly. Like you say, probably didn't even know. So, yeah. I mean, here's your sign. Like right there. CJ looks suspicious. But I'll just say those are my final words. I think that is the sticking point there with his innocence in this case. Alex? I have two things. One that I just thought of that you kind of reminded me of, Katie. But the whole idea that if if it were CJ, what it must have been like to be, you know, just trying to leave the apartment building and then someone comes and walks you back to the scene of your crime. It would be interesting to like know if he had any weird reaction. Like, yes, so true. I think, unfortunately, the person who was with him at that time, Jay, he was a close family friend. He's probably right? so shocked he didn't even realize. Just, yeah, yeah, just yeah. The uh, podcast suspect actually has that nine one one call with Jay made oh. to the police, and you can hear the sheer and I utter panic in it's Jay's horrible. voice. I don't think he would have noticed a single thing about CJ standing next to him at that point. I don't think he would have noticed a thing. But if it were CJ and you were him and that was the you find yourself like walking someone into your own crime scene, that would be pretty like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, shit, I was trying to get out of here. Yeah. And now I have to go back to the scene and pretend to like discover this whole thing. I was trying to be in Canada. Shit. <laughs> right. Got to head back to Canada. <laughs> This time I'm going, I'll go to Mexico. Yeah. Oh, what, what a freaking idiot. And then the second thing that 
occurred to me this question of like why don't we hear about this case more it's like kind of baffling because not only is it like a halloween murder mystery with like multiple suspects and just a lot of very intriguing elements and it happened on halloween like this should be a a classic i don't i don't want this to happen but you know if it were a different situation maybe or different victim or different like setup it would totally be a very sensationalized crime you would think so it just double begs the question like maybe it's good that it isn't sensationalized i'm not sure that sensationalizing these sort of cases is actually i don't think that's great but i think in this case you can use that uh what's that adage any publicity is good publicity yeah it's bad publicity right Mm -hmm. and for cases like this publicity is what puts the pressure on the police departments and the prosecutors and the judicial system to look into it and bring it to conclusion so i think in this case sensationalism is good might have helped it may have worked it may have worked but yes why isn't this case talked about? It's got so many twists and turns and possible suspects. And it's right up there with Serial. Right up there with uh, Haming's case. It is. Plus, like, you have Little Red Riding Hood and the wolf. You, there's just so much to do with it. Oh, my God. I didn't even think of that before you brought that up. It's very much like that story. She was innocent. She wasn't expecting it. And this big bad wolf came out of nowhere, pretended to be a friend, mm-hmm. and ended up killing her. Wow. Could yeah. be, right? Yeah. 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 Very difficult case, but an important one to talk about. And I highly recommend everyone to listen to those episodes on Unresolved and the Suspect podcast to get a lot more information about this. There are so many details about the prosecution, the case, the trial. If you want details about that, Suspect does a good job of uh, laying all of that out. And with that, we come to Bollywood Corner. I just want to do a very super quick movie recommendation on the theme of unreliable DNA used in investigations. Check out the Telugu movie Hit the Second Case. That's the whole name of the movie, Hit the Second Case. There's (laughs) actually Hit the First Case. Okay. Um, But the second one is what focuses on unreliable DNA. It's a decent police procedural. A confident, arrogant super cop is baffled when he is faced with a horrific murder that turns out to be the work of a serial killer. And at that one scene, there's a lot of DNA evidence, like bloody footprints, thumbprints, fingerprints, blood evidence. But it seems just too good to be true. Too good to be true. And that's about all I'm going to tell you. I don't want to ruin anything for anyone. I I thought this was an interesting movie. Like, at the end, you are a little bit surprised. Like, when they reveal who the killer is, I didn't see it coming. They did a good job of hiding the suspect in this movie. So go check it out. That sounds really good. Hit. The second case. (laughs) It is available in the U.S. on Prime. I believe Amazon Prime has it. Cool. I'm going to check it out. That sounds really good. Uh, With that said, I think we're almost done with our episode. It's a really, really long episode. And trust me, I really tried to compress it all and not make it too long. There's so much to talk about. You did a great job, Pia. Thank you. You did. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for raising important points and making amazing observations, which I didn't even think of. So that's great. This is the benefit of having people on. 
um, when you're talking about a case because I don't want it to be a single point of view, a single narrative. So it's great to have the both of you to kind of chime in and add your thoughts and opinions and observation on this story. So thank you so much, Katie, for being a special guest on Crimes from the East. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you for having me, you guys. Yeah, please invite me to do it again. Maybe next week. Maybe <laughs> next great. week. Let's yeah. do it. Anytime. Pick a state. I'll find a case. Anytime. <laughs> thank you. All right. Yeah, it's really uh, nice to have like a fresh voice because, you know, P and I are doing this a lot and I think <laughs> I love doing these kinds of episodes, especially with like fellow true crime podcast. I don't think junkies. 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 Yeah, there you go. Exactly. No, <laughs> it was we know so to great. look for. Yeah, it's it's been really fun. Alex, you want to tell people to do this stuff real quick? Check out our social handles at crimes from the east or on instagram we have a website you can support us on patreon at crimes from the east buy pia a cup of coffee so she can keep writing episodes for us and uh you know if you give us a listen you like what you hear tell your friends about it uh review rate do all the you know help us get out there in into the world i don't know <laughs> i've been i've been on you guys patreon for a while now obviously and i can tell you guys it is so worth it like they put out a lot of stuff it's really fun like listening stuff like patreon is so worth it even if you can give just like a couple bucks you know what i mean so thank you Katie. Do it. Thank we, you. we do we totally do leave in a lot of uh our banter in the patreon version which is not released in general release because I feel like Patreon s- subscribers are the ones who will get it. Like they ha- have the patience they yeah. to listen yes. to your banter totally. and not be like, oh, this is incessant blabbing. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, we we reserve the incessant blabbing for our most distinguished listeners. <laughs> our stupid comments and dad jokes end up in the Patreon, <laughs> Patreon version of our episodes. Um, and thank you so much for that. Um, and make sure you check out Katie's podcast. True crime in the 50. I love saying that. True I love the name. In the 50. Good. All right. Um, thank you everyone for listening and join us again next week for another episode of Crimes from the East. Your Desi True Crime Podcast with a little masala and spice.